This is the time in our service and our weekly rhythm together where we sit under the preaching of the words of God. This is a doubly humbling time for you. First of all, you stop talking right now, and we love to hear ourselves talk, and you get to just turn on your ears and put yourself under the words of God, the truth of God, sound doctrine. Even more humbling than that, you are called to listen to a sinner speak to you. This is the way that Jesus has ordained things to work, to bring us both together and to bring us low before him. If ever there was a passage of scripture that's going to be helpful in getting your heart there, this is going to be the one. My job right now, and it's beautiful, it has eternal realities. One sermon can change the trajectory of your life. It can do that because these words are living and active and sharp and true. So we give them ourselves to them together. Um, We're preaching through the book of Acts. Before we get to the text itself, I've got to do some work with you on the difference between affirmation and flattery, the vast, canyon-esque difference between affirmation and flattery. If you came by our house this afternoon and you went up the side of the house into our backyard area, here's what you would see. Number one, the most over-the-top, fancy-pants treehouse that has ever been built in world's history. Our friend Dave Symington is a carpenter. He came by and built that for us last year. You could host a wedding reception in this treehouse, complete with DJ, dance floor, cake, the whole thing. That's the first thing you would see. Then you would see this height-adjustable, rim-bendable, 60-inch glass basketball backward glass basketball backboard it is the only luxury item that i have purchased in the last 10 years of my life it was worth every penny for our family that's the second thing you would see then you would see this little peace and quiet sunbathing area for grace that she gets to be in about four months out of the year that's her spot over there this wicked rusty shed that desperately needs you to come by and scrape it and repaint it for us And then you would see, I don't know how to explain this exactly, a pink princess go-kart jeep thing. Do you know those things? Okay. Two seats, blue wheels, and no battery. I don't know what raggedy yard sale Grace's mom picked this up at, but it was just in our backyard one afternoon when we came back. There it is. Congratulations. Now, because there is no battery, and because I am not buying a battery for this thing, what has to happen for this this princess go-kart to go? Dad has to get down low behind it and push it. And because I love my seven-year-old daughter, Callie, and her friends, I do that a lot. What happens when I get behind this go-kart and I give it a push? As long as she's not stepping on the brake, which she has also done to me, I propel this princess go-kart forward in her little journey. Now, it's about a 25-foot circle until I'm dizzy. That's the whole journey. But I am 
getting behind her and propelling her forward. That is affirmation. Affirmation is God-glorifying truth that propels us forward. It is speaking the truth to someone about the evidences of God's grace in their life in a way that lifts up God high and propels the person forward in their pursuit of God and holiness in their life. Affirmation is a form of praise, but it is safe praise. It is holy praise. It's the kind of praise that drives through the person and bends up toward God. And so when we affirm someone, we are not failing to give all the glory to God. We are doing that, but we are doing that while simultaneously encouraging and strengthening and emboldening the person in whom God is at work. Do you feel what affirmation is? When given rightly and received rightly, affirmation does not puff us up. It propels us forward. I call affirmation a holy monster drink or holy Red Bull. It's like a holy energy drink for the soul. Okay, it is absolutely crucial that we get this as a family, as a church, and practice this together with each other. You are sent by Jesus to a Bostonian culture that is snarky and negative and critical We have learned since birth around here, if you're from here with us, to use our words to stop people in their tracks and cut their legs out from under them and bring them down. We're awesome at that. But a gospel-formed family is supposed to be very different. We are supposed to be free and frequent in our affirmation of each other. Let me give you a fast illustration of this so that you can feel it, so that you know what I'm talking about. Last month, we finally launched our new website, wicked important tool for making disciples so that people in our area know what we're about and can find us. It was on Pastor Dan Coe, our pastor over in Malden, to pick the new WordPress theme and implement the new WordPress theme and help this guy contextualize the new WordPress theme for Melrose. Dan did two things. It took him about 90 days. First, he chose an excellent, excellent theme. He did the research and he just nailed it. Great choice. Then he came alongside me. So this super techie brother came alongside me and he answered every single question that I had about the website, and it was like 59,246 questions, if you know me. He answered every single one without once being impatient or being cranky or condescending. At our team meeting before Mission and Vision Night, right at the beginning, I stopped everybody and I said, Dan, out loud in front of the team, I know that how hard this job was that we gave you. I want you to hear from me. I don't think you could possibly have chosen a better theme. You nailed it. 
And I don't know how you could possibly have shown me more love in the process. You just did a great job with this. Thank you. Does everyone feel that? That is gospel-centered affirmation. Jesus is so at work in your heart, and He is moving you to such hard work for the advance of the gospel, and He is stirring in you such brotherly love for me that it just came out of you, and I saw it, and I loved it, and I affirm it in you. This needs to become a practice in the life of our church. I have seen husbands love wives in this church so beautifully that I couldn't help but move toward them and just say, can I get you for a second? Thank you for being a safe and selfless and holy and faithful husband so that this wife under your care would just thrive. I've seen Jesus do that in you. I've seen dad stand out front with their little kids sprinting up and down that handicap ramp and get down low with their children and both love them and correct them and be invested in their lives. And I just couldn't help but move toward them and say, thank you, thank you. I love the way in a culture that hates children and fatherhood, you are moving towards your kids in love. Does everyone feel that? That is gospel affirmation, God-glorifying, Christian-propelling, and it is safe for us to both give and receive affirmation like that. Okay, this ain't going to work if I pull this back up. Did that just zip off of there? You were all listening to me so well, you didn't see what happened over there. All right, let me try it again. Sorry about that. We got that part down? Okay. Next step is this. What is true about affirmation is not true about flattery. Here's what flattery is. Flattery is manipulative lies that puff us up. If affirmation is holy Red Bull, flattery is evil poison. Poison. And if you grow to to get a taste for flattery, it will kill you and everything that you are called to. Come back to the princess go-kart with me. Imagine instead of pushing Callie forward, I somehow snuck underneath that thing and lifted that up over my head like this. Imagine if I was able to do that. Instead of pushing her forward, I've got her up in this heavy go-kart Jeep over my head. Is this a good idea or a bad idea? That's a bad idea right there. Now, would she get a rush out of being 10 feet up in the air like that for a few seconds? She would love that. Wow, look at me up here. For about nine seconds until these skinny arms gave way and that Jeep came crashing down to the ground. That's not how a a go-kart works. Up is not the direction that you're supposed to go, especially if the only thing holding you up is some weak man. But that is exactly how flattery works, exactly. 
Flattery is a perversion of affirmation. Affirmation propels you forward. Flattery puffs you up. Affirmation drives through the person toward God, but what about flattery? It stops short with the person. No reference to the grace of God. Affirmation is grounded in truth. Flattery is a bunch of exaggerations and hyperboles and deceits and lies, and it is deadly. Those who are leading liturgy this year have memorized Psalms 1 through 10 so that we can get up here and model for you what it looks like to get the Word of God hidden in your heart. Last week I was working through Psalm 5, and these were the words. For there is no truth in their mouths. Their inmost being is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Okay, I don't know if you've ever memorized Scripture, but you're like banging the words around in your head over and over and over again till you like get it in there. And you're trying to understand the words, which makes it way easier for you to remember them because all the connections happen. I'm telling you that I'm memorizing this part of the psalm and I'm going, lies, death, destruction. I get it. What is flattery doing at the end of this part of this prayer? I, I couldn't figure it out. What does flattery have to do with the other things in this psalm? The answer is, Everything, everything. Look with me at how this psalm is built. In the middle is what? It is death and destruction, open grave destruction. It's in the middle. What are the bookends around this truth that lead to that terrible middle? They are lies and flattery. Everybody see the important connection there that this psalm is teaching us? Flattery is speaking lies to someone about how great they are with no reference to Christ. It is manipulating them when it sees an opportunity to gain something by feeding their pride. And pride always comes before a terrible, terrible fall. Right now, we have, both, we have all been on both ends of flattery, have we not? Both ends of it. We flatter people to get something from them. Oh, mom, you are the greatest cook in the history of the universe. Can be code for what? Make me breakfast. Especially that French toast thing with the pecans. Mr. Smith, you are my favorite teacher. Every time you talk, it just makes sense to my brain. Can be code for what? Give me an A plus. Susie, you're the prettiest girl in the school. You're the prettiest girl I've ever seen. Giselle, who's that? Look at you. That could be code for what? I need a date to the prom, so I'm going to reel you in by lifting you up. Do you feel that? So I will confess to you that this has been a part of my pastoral ministry, and I hate it, and I'm working on getting away from it. But it is so easy for a pastor who needs to get from you 
to flatter you by lying to you about how awesome you are and lifting you up. This is most pronounced for my soul when people are transitioning in and out of the life of the church. So when somebody's new, especially when you've planted two churches and you're stressed about how many people come to church, what do you find your tongue doing? Flattering them, lifting them up so that they will like you and like the church and, and start coming here. You see how ugly that is? How about when someone leaves the church? What's the easy out there? It's just to flatter them on their way out so that they like you, so that when they leave, there's no issues somewhere else. It's more comfortable that way. I will hold back from having a hard conversation and just falsely pretend that you are just the awesomest person that ever came to our church so that when you leave, you will just say good things about us. Does everybody feel the yucky, ugly, deceitful, manipulative lie in lifting someone up to a place that they don't belong? That is flattery. Why does it work so great? Why does it work so well? Because we love going up in the go-kart. We love being made much of. We love for the glory to stop short right here. We love being lifted up to the sky. But what is your response supposed to be when flattery comes your way? You're supposed to yell what Callie would yell. Put me down, Dad. Put me down. I don't belong up here. But instead, what does your heart say? What does your heart say? It doesn't say, put me down, does it? It says, tell me more. Tell me more. Ooh, I like that. Tell me more. If that is you, the next four verses of Scripture are going to be very, very helpful to prepare you for this danger by showing you a story of flattery taking someone all the way to the end. All right, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen. This is Acts chapter 12. This is the big idea of the whole chapter. If you oppose Jesus and the advance of his gospel through his church, you lose. You lose. The chapter is about Jesus and Herod. At the start of the chapter, King Herod kills King Jesus's Pastor James, and at the end of the chapter, King Jesus takes out King Herod. Luke put this chapter together for these early Christians who were such a persecuted minority in the life of the big Roman Empire so that they would be encouraged to know it's going to be okay. If you are with Jesus, you win. If you oppose Jesus, even if you are King Herod, your end is coming. That's the big frame of this chapter, and now we're going to look at the last four verses. At the beginning of this chapter, we got a little insight into King Herod's character. When he executed Pastor James, the Apostle James, how did the Jerusalem leaders respond to that? They loved it, and so what did they do? They praised Herod for it. Oh, they applauded him, fist bumps all around. They texted him that 
high five emoji on their iPhone. They were just praising King Herod. Oh, what an excellent public policy. What a wise governor you are. So politically astute. What a brilliant decision. What is that? That is flattery. That's why he went and arrested Peter, because he wanted more of that. Any of those things true? Lies. Manipulations of Herod through flattery so that they could get the public policy that they wanted. So at the beginning of this chapter, we feel the danger zone King Herod is stepping into. What's happened in this man's life? He's developed a taste for flattery. You know the buffalo chicken pizza from Pizza Pizza? Like if you buy that, I'm eating that. It doesn't even matter if I just like had lunch. I just, I got a taste for that. That's what happened to this man's tongue. He has developed a taste for flattery. And if you are seeking praise like that, if you love to be lifted high, you are in a collision course with God who alone is worthy of praise and height and glory like that. We can feel now in this story, this is coming. You ever play musical chairs? So lots of our Seven Mile Road kids are in that age now when those games are just the awesomest thing in the world, right? Musical chairs. You know when there's two people left and one chair left? gets really tense in that moment in the room. Hopefully it's like Will Smith on the stereo or Saturday Night Fever or something, but the music's playing and everybody in the room is like, oh man, here we go, one chair, two people left. You know that within three, four, five, six seconds, somebody's going to be on the ground and somebody's going to be in that chair. At least we played full contact musical chairs, so elbows and knees were completely allowed. That's the context for our text. Feel it with me before we go to the actual words. There is one chair of glory, just one, and God belongs in that chair, and Herod is looking to find a way to be seated in it, and you know who's going to win this one. All right, here we go. Let's work the words. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Tyre and Sidon, just think Gloucester and Rockport. That's what this was like, two coastal cities. Wicked thick accents, lobster every night for dinner, these really overpriced trinket shops. That was Tyre and Sidon. Major commercial ports, big, big, big business, but what did they not have in Tyre and Sidon on the coast? What did they not have? Fields with grain and barley and oats. They had no farmland to grow grain, no food source. Where did they get their food from? Galilee, where Herod was king. Acres and acres and acres of farm land. 
They are dependent on Herod for their food, but he is a tyrant, which means someone who has authority but no morality and no compassion. He gets angry with these cities and something goes down. This centuries-old trade agreement that they had is in jeopardy. He slaps an embargo on them and that means no more food for Tyre and Sidon. Major problem. What do the leaders of these cities do? They make a plan. We got to get before King Herod. We got to get him to change his mind. We will beg, we will plead, we will bargain, we will grovel, we will flatter. Whatever it takes to get this man to change his mind. They make a connection with some dude called Blastus, who just sounds like a villain from the Avengers. He was the chief of staff to Herod. He works some kind of arrangement out. They set a day to ratify the new agreement. And now everyone in this room should feel the danger that's coming. A whole contingent of people from these coastal cities are coming down to Galilee. They are ready to flatter their way to an agreement. They will say whatever it takes to get their food and end this embargo. Everybody feel that? Here's our next verse. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on his throne, and delivered an oration to them. This is the one of the places in your Bible where we also have this account in Josephus' Antiquities. He was like the Doris Kearns Goodwin of his day, the Michael Lewis of his day, a historian. And he had great interest in the rise and fall of the kings of Israel. And so he has a whole section on this story in his Antiquities. He said that in this day, uh, Herod had built a big amphitheater in Caesarea. And there would be performances and there would be plays held on this incredible, magnificent stage like the balcony up here where these guys are doing audio for us. And so on this day, he says that Herod told them to set up the stage extra high. And he called this meeting with the representatives from Tyre and Sidon at 5.30 in the morning. The sun is, is cresting over the horizon at that time, right? Dawn. And he goes into his wardrobe and he pulls out the Elton John special. These are his robes that are just like fancy Nancy, glittering, silver, Josephus tells us, a gown of silver. And he puts it on and he sits up on this throne in this amphitheater and these, these people who are desperate for food are down low beneath him. And he gives this speech. And what do the crowds from Tyre and Sidon say to this royal king in this royal attire as the sun is just reflecting off this silver robe of his. Here's what they say. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. The voice of a God and not of a man. I need you to feel the sin of flattery and pride in this sentence. 
So there's the sin of commission. These crowds are sinning terribly. Praising Him with a praise that stops with Him and does not drive through Him and bend upwards to God. This is a problem. They're lying. They are manipulating. They are puffing Him up to a place He doesn't belong. They're getting under that go-kart and they were lifting that thing up on their own human hands, putting him up where he does not belong. And then is the sin of omission. What wasn't done, which should have been done. What is Herod supposed to shout right now? Put me down. Put me down. I am not supposed to be up here. No way. Silence. Stop it. Instead, what does Herod do? What does the guy that had a taste for flattery do? What does he do? He drinks this moment down to the dregs. He loves it. He takes it all in. He allows for it. Yes, I belong up here. I am just like a god. And he's up there for about nine seconds until what happens? What happens to all those who have developed a taste for flattery and want themselves to be puffed up where they don't belong? Pride always comes before a fall. Last verse, immediately. This is the way it is with the judgments of Jesus. Think of his grace, his long-suffering, and his patience. But there is an end to it. Noah, Sodom, Passover, Jericho, Psalm 73, Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Boom. Judgment sweeps in immediately. John Piper says it like this, that God allows Herod's pride and self-centeredness to go all the way to the end so that you and I can see where our pride is headed and why we should kill it as soon as it raises its ugly head. That's this verse. Right in the middle of the most lavish display of His glory, up on the the falsehoods of flattery, Luke says, He was eaten by worms and breathed His last. This is not like a bad Godzilla movie where something like climbed over the top of the amphitheater and just chomped on Herod. I forget the name of that creature that Godzilla defeats, but it's a giant fuzzy worm. That's not this right here. This is most likely like a terrible stomach painful illness that just struck him in that moment and he toppled over. And Josephus tells us that five days later after torturous pain that they could not manage, he dies. We think maybe his appendix burst or something like that. We also think he could have been poisoned with arsenic. That happened in these days. He's a ruler and somebody maybe, when he wasn't paying attention, poisoned him. But whatever whatever his end was, I love the word that Luke puts in there. By the inspiration of the Spirit, he was eaten by worms. Don't miss that word worm. It's in here for a purpose. What is the least glorious, least beautiful, most ridiculous creature in the animal kingdom? 
Don't say cats. People get very offended at that. A slimy, pathetic, tiny, brown, ugly worm. I mean, a worm's life is lower than low, right? A worm doesn't even spend its life on the ground. It spends its life under the ground, just in the muck and mire of dirt. Like, you can't get lower than that. Ironic, but fitting end to a life that loved flattery. Why was he brought so low so quickly? Luke tells us, because he did not give God the glory. Because he did not give God the glory. What was terminating with him never should have. He should have pointed to God. This is why I love Christian athletes who give props to Jesus when they get interviewed on TV. Have you seen this before? It's a beautiful gospel moment. What's going on right there? It's the antithesis of this right here. The athlete has been lifted up to his or her highest moment, right? Nailed the home run, threw the touchdown pass, won the championship, jumped the long jump, whatever it is. The reporter comes running over to them with the cameraman, with the bright lights on the camera. Please, please, can I get a word with you? I just, I need to talk to you. Your millions of adoring fans are going to hear this. You are our great and grand hero. Can I get an interview with you? Does everybody feel the danger of that moment for a professional athlete? The great danger. Will they take glory for themselves or will they drive it through them to Christ? What does the Christian athlete instinctively do? Right away. Jeremy Lin, Landry Fields, Lolo Jones, Tim Tebow, Shakira Headley, Stephen Drew, Seth Curry, all these people that accomplish these wonderful things on tracks and fields and courts. What do they instinctively say in that moment? What do they say? Come on, please don't miss this. They say, put me down. They say, put me down, man. Put me down. Here's how it comes out. I just want to give thanks and praise to my Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's how it comes out. The world hates that. Venom against that. I love it. That is precious to me. And it is instructive to me. I mean, if only Herod would have responded like that, right? Here's our big idea. This is for you. Please don't ever forget this. Rest of your life. This is for me. And this is for us, our identity as a gospel-formed family. Affirmation, yes, yes. Flattery, no, never, never. There are marriages that have come undone because husband or wife developed a taste for flattery from someone other than their husband or wife. I know that temptation. 
There are athletes and musicians and pastors whose careers and ministries have come undone because they had a taste for flattery. I like it up here. We have messed terribly with two generations of children in the United States of America by teaching them to get a taste for flattery, call it self-esteem. You, with no reference to Christ, you are awesome. Let me not affirm you, let me lift you up and flatter you. There is no life in the giving or the receiving of flattery, none. How do we get past this? The antidote, the remedy, like everything else, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel ends this taste for flattery in our life. Here's the first way. The gospel tells you, you are already lifted up as high as imaginable in Christ. The gospel says it to you like this. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In other words, there's no way for Jesus to look at you with more acceptance and more approval and more affirmation than he does right now. You don't need my petty flatteries. You don't need my exaggerations. You don't need any of that if you've believed the gospel. You, you are seated with Christ in a way that is so much higher than any man or woman could ever lift you. If you believe that, flattery just seems ridiculous. It's bland. The, the taste just goes away because you've believed the gospel. And then the second way is this. I could give you 100, but just here's the second way. If you believe the gospel, you know that the only affirmation that really, really matters is coming. Do you know that in the gospel, a promise has been given to you? As you chase after Christ with all of your life and all of your heart and all of your stuff and all that you've got, and it's a windy road, but as you chase him, you will stand before Jesus and he will give you the greatest capital A affirmation possible. Well done. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. See, if you believe the gospel, you know that that affirmation is coming. It's coming. You will not forfeit that for some petty flatteries in this life. You will set your heart to say, get rid of the taste for myself being lifted up. I have Christ. I have his approval now. I will have his approval in the future. Put me down. Put me down. Drive your words to me, to the glory of God in Christ. If you have developed a taste for flattery, will you just repent of that with me right now as we pray? Let's do that. Father, I pray that you would bring us low because that's where you go. You go to the humble. You go to the brokenhearted. You go to the poor in spirit. I pray that you would teach us the difference between affirmation and flattery and that Seven Mile Road and our gospel communities and my friends in this room, we would be ferocious in our affirming of each other, but that we would never speak another word of flattery ever. 
where we have developed a taste for this, I pray that you would make it foul to our tongue, that we would all just be about the glory of God and happy to give it to him. And I revel in the good news of the gospel that I'm accepted and approved. I'm awesome in the eyes of God the Father because I stand in the righteousness of Christ the Son. And my real affirmation is coming. Help me help us to believe that, I pray. Amen.